I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I'm just a, I'm just an internet Christian Marxist influencer. <laughs> it's just, just a wooden boy, a regular wooden boy. <laughs> Transforming slowly into a real person through this podcast. <laughs> uh, it's Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's Thanksgiving. Um, this is the last time the Magnificast will be recorded in Greenville, Illinois. I'm moving. That's right. Into that big city. That's right. Uh, two big city boys on this one podcast. We'll see if uh, the airwaves can handle it. Hey, I'm walking here. <laughs> uh, soon you will be. Now you're just sitting there. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, well. That's cool. What a big life transition is coming up here. It's also Thanksgiving. A lot, a lot to give thanks for, like the big city. <laughs> That's right. Uh, this episode will come out on Black Friday, even. Uh, not something to be thankful for, but a horrible, terrible liturgy of capitalism that nevertheless we all um, pass through each year. <laughs> Man, I just hope the best for all the workers, for all those Target yeah. employees out there. Good luck, y'all. Yeah. I had to work retail once, but thankfully not in like a big, big box store or anything like that. And I yeah. cannot imagine being like, I don't know, told that you have to be on the floor at 2 a.m. So that, you know, the guy who used to coach your like little league team can get his TV <laughs> at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Hey, one time I worked at Radio Shack and I was in community college. <laughs> Radio Shack is also not a big box store, but it is a store. And I had yeah. to be um, at, at Black Friday at like 5 a.m. And um, it was sort of all hands on deck. Everyone that worked at Radio Shack, was they were, we were all there ready to sell some bad TVs and some terrible toys to people. And um, and 6 a.m. rolled around and the doors opened up and not a single person showed up until 8 a.m. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Yeah, I know. I didn't get any good commissions that day. It was just a big, it was a big wreck. Did you make commissions at Radio Shack? Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, there's wow. they have this whole situation where you make commissions, and if you sell uh, mobile phones, uh, cell phones, you get a lot of money. Well, huh. not um, community college Matt a lot of money, not adult Matt a lot of money. <laughs> Real uh, Jim Halpert over there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's a, a supremely dumb place to work, and it's I think almost out of business now. So um, there's that. There's that. That's what I'm thankful for. 
<laughs> that's right the blackest of fridays for uh radio shack in particular that's right um all right well uh we are not going to talk about that so you're welcome <laughs> if you want if you want good thanksgiving related content uh a while back i don't know last year the year before we read uh combat liberalism or something to talk about um how you should talk about your talk to your family so you can go back and find that um if you want <laughs> this week though uh we're actually talking about some religious left news we've been doing these roundups periodically just every once in a while when there's enough accumulated material to make them make sense to do something about them and we've got some we're gonna get to it we're gonna talk about mayor pete we're gonna talk about julian castro we're gonna talk about lenin and electoralism and everything else but before we get there matt i do have a holiday themed uh reddit for you okay i want to run by you uh-huh all right. Lay it on me. The, the title here is simply I've done goofed up <laughs> and it is from two years ago. So uh, I'm not sure how, how relevant this will be, but just to, you know, I'm sure this is a very universal experience that will be um, communicated here. So this user says I was Black Friday shopping today and I freaking got unjustifiably angry at someone. <laughs> I repented and asked for forgiveness, but I wish I could actually apologize to the person I hurt. I didn't see the person face to face. I slandered their name behind their back and I feel awful. No, not anyone good. got any control your anger type of advice because it's a struggle for me. Uh-huh. Now you've come to the right place on this one. Yeah, um, I thought I might have. I am the dad to an extremely just uh I mean I'm it's just a four year old, a regular four year old. <laughs> but he can go from zero to 100 angry in uh, no seconds flat. So I do know all of the great strategies to help you out with controlling your anger this holiday season. Um, okay, so step one. Um, you could do, this is the Daniel Tiger technique. You just take a deep breath and then you try it again. <laughs> that's, that's a good it. one. You do, yeah, that's a good one. It's great. Um, the other one is, um, let's see. The other person, okay, so you're very angry, and then have the other person yell at you and make you feel bad and take away your Legos. That's a thing oh, no. you can try. <laughs> yeah, that requires the other person to kind of take some some real control of the situation, but oh, and your Legos, but it's something you could try. Um, let's see. You could have another person distract you with Star Wars. That's something maybe that would be good for your anger that seems issues. Good. Yeah, that seems yeah. good. So just like you, okay, here's what you do. Um, so you, you're going to go to the mall. Um, it's Black Friday. You need to get that big TV. Um, but you know that you, you're not going to be able to do that without being very angry at somebody because, mm-hmm. um, you know, Black Friday is an inherently terrible situation and you're already an angry person or whatever. So you take, you, you have to hire someone to do this because you wouldn't want to just rely on a friend or family member to kind of um, be there for your wrath. But you hire somebody to come along um, and they are going to show you clips of the Phantom Menace every time you get too mad about something. And then you'll yeah, just be yeah. distracted. You'll be like, wow, I love pod racing. Here's the challenge, though. Uh, this person in particular got freaking unjustifiably angry at someone and didn't even see this person to face face to face. They slandered them behind their back. And yeah. I'm just thinking the, the scheme that you're working out here, it sounds fine. It sounds good. But uh, what if you're so unjustifiably freaking angry that you can't even communicate it to the person that you brought along to hold you accountable, your anger accountability partner. Yeah, no, that's hard. Yeah, I mean, I think if you get too mad and no and, and no one can even talk to you, 
Um, you just gotta, that other person, they just need to be with you there for a minute, sit through your tantrum, and then they do need to take your Legos away. That's going to be part of it. Yeah, I'm so sorry. That good. has to be the way that it is, but it's just, that's what it is. You got to take your Legos away. Fair enough. Uh, there are two, um, good suggestions here in the comments. Uh, a number of them are actually good saying, uh, maybe you should think about, uh, anger management. That's great. Uh, no, absolutely. That's what you should really do. Probably seek counseling, anger management, yeah. all of those things is really the answer. Yeah, and someone also does say, like, you know, just don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but uh, no. one one person suggests Warren Wearsby gives a very easy way to start your day. Um, that's a guy who wrote a, a devotional. So you could just read a devotional every day and you'll never get angry. Well, so that'd make you more angry. Response. Okay. Um, another is that you could go to the subreddit for Stoicism because they are our brothers in ethics, perhaps even our twins. So you can ask um, the Stoics what to do. The Stoics are the 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 twins of Christian ethics. Perhaps this person says perhaps. Perhaps is doing a lot of work there. <laughs> uh, well, I think we've got uh, the the take your leg is away solution is a pretty good one um, worth trying today on Black Friday. This Black Friday, uh, if you see if you see someone getting angry, uh, just intervene. Get those Legos. Uh, you'll be the hero. You'll have saved everybody. You'll save the day. Get those Legos or show them the clip from Phantom Menace where they do pod race. And that's just right, that's right. enough to distract most people from their anger because it's it's so good. <laughs> I do think if I was uh, unjustifiably freaking angry and someone uh, out of nowhere uh, <laughs> came to the rescue with a pod racing scene, I'm not sure how I would re uh, reply, but it would distract me from my anger. I'll say that. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. All right. That's enough of that. We're done. We've done our holiday duties. We've paid the bill, the holiday bill. And now we're uh, talking about the religious left, uh, the one thing that nobody ever asked us to talk about, but the one thing that we're constantly going to anyway. Uh, our brand at this podcast is uh, all about being, you know, authentically, faithfully Christian, while also being authentically, faithfully Marxist. Uh, <laughs> that's that, that would be our, that's our brand intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, communism revolution, uh, Jesus, church Hawkins, we love it all. Uh, we've been through it all. We're still in some of it. Uh, these are all qualities though, that you'd never find in an actual politician until mayor Pete Buttigieg showed up on the scene, the ultimate Christian leftist. Uh, not, not exactly, but there are journalists who would like you to believe that, <laughs> uh, mayor Pete is still somehow a contender to be the democratic candidate to go up against Donald Trump in the next year, uh, next year's election. And this past week, Buttigieg is still riding that train of being the progressive Christian out there. Uh, there's, I mean, pretty much everybody on stage except like Bernie, I think, is a Christian. Um, but at the end of the day, it's Mayor Pete who's turned it into a brand, a personal brand. Um, it's something that will probably get him some great book deals once all this is over. Um, but in light of all that, we thought we'd do an episode that gives us a little bit of an update on the state of the religious left discourse in the U.S., and you might be thinking, haven't you already done that episode? You'd be right. We have done it twice, I think. <laughs> but the discourse keeps evolving, and we're going to keep keep up with it, and we're going to keep you up to date with it. So in this episode, we're going to talk a bit about how Pete Buttigieg interprets his politics in light of his faith. Um, we're all, we're going to kind of pull some stuff he did uh, with Jim Wallace, an interview he did. It's uh I would say it's interesting, but it's not. Um, and then we'll do a little bit of media <laughs> criticism with regard to Mayor Pete and another candidate who just scored a little more religious left street cred, Julian Castro. Um, 
Yeah, this is not an endorsement of either of these people, very clearly so. <laughs> Julian Castro is not even like on the debate stage, um, which is, I think, unfortunate, actually. But um, anyways, he, um, yeah, had this thing a few weeks back where he was um, uh, with some Catholic workers, and it's kind of interesting. Um, so anyways, we'll take those two politicians into consideration with regard to the religious left, and then we'll like round out the conversation in a little bit more of a broad um, like and Marxist way. Um, with some thoughts on why leftists in general should care about electoralism and politics and this whole big election anyways. Yeah, so let's start with Mayor Pete. Uh, this past week, a few articles came out that indicated that Mayor Pete is doing well in the Iowa polls, a, a supreme tragedy. We all sort of thought Mayor Pete was on, on the downhill, but apparently not. Uh, Iowa is always one of those contested states that somehow has, has a lot of power in elections. Um, I don't know. If you don't know anything about it, you're doing great. <laughs> you're, you're lucky and you shouldn't worry about it. But it's important because it's an early state that votes in primaries. And so it kind of like sets the sets the tone along with another uh, uh, a number of other states um, for the rest of the, the primary season. So it's kind of a big deal. So this small spark of hope for Mayor Pete fed into the larger Mayor Pete media discourse and then in turn the religious left. So Pete Buttigieg, he's one of the candidates who's most well known for being associated with what some journalists call the religious left, which is a pretty complicated way of just saying a Democrat who goes to church. Uh, we've talked about Mayor Pete in the past, and we've talked about that kind of media idea of the religious left in the past, too. But just to give you some, uh, maybe like a summation of how this has gone. So all before the primary w primaries were happening, there were a number of journalists who were trying to insist that the religious left is a thing. People know the religious right is a thing, but trust us, these journalists said the left is too. And by the left, again, they meant Democrats, Christian Democrats or Democrats who are willing to talk to Christians um, by and large. And at first, the person they proposed was Cory Booker because he was, first of all, a, an early candidate to announce. And also, he's a person who goes to church and does actually use that language of faith in his life and campaign, etc. So he was going to be the religious left candidate. But uh, over time, Mayor Pete came out swinging and he made that his brand. Uh, so Cory Booker sort of allowed journalists to run with it. But Mayor Pete really like invited it and leaned into it. I don't know if he saw like some kind of media niche that he could capitalize on or, or what. Um, but he's become really the poster person for the religious left now. And uh, that is revealed, especially in this interview that he did with Jim Wallace, uh, who is, you know, not maybe he wouldn't call himself the voice of the religious left, but he certainly is the voice of the evangelical left in many respects, for better or for worse. Uh, that's Jim Wallace's role. So this interview that Jim Wallace and Mayor Pete do together is kind of, I don't know, symbolic or significant because it's this meeting together of two people who have really um, taken on board an identification with progressive politics and their own Christian tradition. Yeah, that all sounds about right to me. Oh, man, too bad about Cory Booker. I like him better than Pete Buttigieg, but only marginally. <laughs> um, sorry, I have a lot of bad things to say about Pete Buttigieg, and I won't right now. Okay, so yeah, uh, Pete Buttigieg, he's got this interview with Jim Wallace. Um, it's been brought to my attention that Jim Wallace offered interviews to other people who are running as well, but Pete Buttigieg is definitely the person that took them up on it at this moment. So um, this is not like... This isn't like uh, necessarily a story about how Sojourners is giving preferential treatment to one candidate over others. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But this is definitely a place where Pete Buttigieg does articulate kind of his faith and his politics and how those things fit together in the most boring way imaginable. Um, 
So the whole thing starts off with Jim Wallace, and he asks, you've talked more about Jesus than any other candidate, Republican or Democrat. Why? And Pete Buttigieg says some things. He says, because I think it's important, and because I fear that there's been an effort to recruit Jesus into one political party, the Republican Party. And of course, God doesn't belong to a political party in this country. And as Lincoln said, everybody's trying to get God on their side, but you're probably better off trying to make sure you're on God's side. But I think we need to be, <laughs> but I think we need just to just even the conversation out. I guess this is so funny to me because like, um, I can't think of anything more. Okay. I mean, obviously Republicans using Jesus and Christianity to um, fuel their rhetoric and their policy and stuff is like absolutely nothing new. I mean, white supremacists have been doing that forever, but like when Pete Buttigieg says it, it just seems completely vacuous. Like it actually means nothing. <laughs> um, I don't know what this means for his policy. And in fact, he doesn't say there's a vice article that came out a few days ago. Um, where Pete Buttigieg is asked about his policy and Pete Buttigieg is like, I don't know, man, um, we should just be really <laughs> philosophical about this policy. Cause like, we don't know the answers and I don't know. It's just a lot of bullshit. Anyways, I have, when Pete Buttigieg talks like this, it just makes me feel like he has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. It's weird because, um, I mean, so much of this interview is full of religious platitudes that sort of sound nice, but aren't really saying anything or things that you've heard a hundred times from somebody else. So they don't actually contribute anything like unique or, even tell you that much about uh, Mayor Pete's own political paradigm, it seems to me. I mean, he he clearly is trying to root his politics in a, a broader, like, moral imagination and framework. And people really praise him for that in some respect because it's trying to, to get the discourse to function in a different way or a different level. But the irony is, for all the, the moral framework that gets expanded, it basically ends up looking like the same old, you know, neoliberal capitalism that everybody else yeah. has, at which point you're kind of like, well, please actually don't. Like, you might be damaging <laughs> the possibility of a religious left more than uh, affirming or funding it. I mean, certainly that's that would be, from our position, I think, <laughs> pretty clear. Yeah, totally. It's also just like so unimaginative and boring. I mean, Christianity is about a guy, about like a Palestinian Jew who raised was raised from the dead, and also hated the Roman like the Romans, the Roman government, like executed by the state. He fed people just indiscriminately and healed them and like did all these like wild things. And Pete Buttigieg is like, well, I do think that people should be able to choose whether or not they want Medicare. It's like the most like, (laughs) (laughs) like completely hollow and tepid sort of thing. Like if you, if you really are a Christian, you believe all these like crazy things happened, man, are you doing the most boring thing you can imagine with it? Yeah. Well, let me read this other quote and I think it actually gives us kind of a lot to bounce around here. So mayor Pete filling a little bit more of this out, he says, I do think that if there is such a thing as a religious right, then there had better be something like a religious left, although that doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be a mirror image. I think it means that above all that, people of faith know that they do have a choice, that that if your religious values guide you in what you do in the voting booth, then make sure that's all of your religious values, including the ones about protecting the marginalized, being concerned for the poor, and respecting the dignity uh, of everybody, and feeding the hungry, and identifying with prisoners, and welcoming strangers all the things that are in there, but it does, of course, diminish religion to reduce it to a political value system. There's a great peril, even as I often recruit religious arguments to try to explain what I think is morally at stake in what I have to offer. Uh, and he, you know, criticizes the idea of fitting God into sort of a political box. There's a, kind of a lot going on in this packed in paragraph. I mean, he's speaking off the hook, off the cuff, but some rehearsed lines, I think. 
but the idea here that I want to start off with is just the uh, thing he says right at the top about if there's a religious right, then there should be a religious left. Although that doesn't necessarily mean it, it should be a mirror or a inverse of the religious right, it seems. And I think that's really like interesting because I mean, yes, like that's true. <laughs> that's very true. Except it's so much of what the religious left looks like for Pete Buttigieg does actually seem like a mirror of the religious right to me. Uh, it's hard for me to sort of see how they're distinguished. I don't know, Matt, how did that strike you? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that he's right. Like the Christian left or the religious left shouldn't look like the religious right. And that is, I think, true. But for people to judge, it is exactly that. Like, well, we're the liberals, though. <laughs> like, that's it, <laughs> right? We're the we're the progressive Christians who um, are going to, like, I don't know, keep DACA alive or something. And um, and uh, abortion is, like, a woman's right. And, um, y- you know, like, it's just going to be countering every single other religious right talking point with a religious left talking point. I mean, what, that's right. at least what I've seen of people to judge when he talks about these things. It's, like, always just the... It is the mirror image. It's never thinking outside the box. It just seems, I mean, like even later in, in this like same quote, it seems so weird, right? Like um, it's about welcoming strangers and like um, identifying with the prisoners and being concerned for the poor. It's like Pete Buttigieg, what are you talking about? Like when, when has a Democrat ever done these things? Um, it, it seems so hollow because like the, the way that he would enact any of those things is completely, I don't know stupid it doesn't it doesn't solve any problems it doesn't actually show concern for the poor it shows like concern for entrepreneurs and job creators and stuff like that but it's just uh it's a way to talk about christianity that seems progressive uh but it's actually not i think just just offering the fact that like this is not the religious right is is like enough for some people but it is there's like nothing behind the curtain yeah Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, this quote is also so strange because surrounding it in this interview is also all these weird appeals to national mythmaking in the United States. Like he really drives that home that he he thinks that there's a role for the nation and for nationality. And it's to sort of swell everybody into this this spiritual identity that obliterates, you know, these antagonisms that are in the body politic. Like that's how he sort of speaks. And uh, at one point he talks about how, you know, he had this military service and he really appreciated it. And he thinks there should be a a mandated national service that uh, he goes out of his way to say you should be able to volunteer for it. But uh, there should be mandated service anyway, um, or at least sort of widely available national service that he thinks everybody should do. And it's really fascinating because what so often characterizes the religious right and the thing that people get upset about is that people see religion being made subservient to these other kinds of things, Mm -hmm. to national mythmaking, to (laughs) the idea that everybody should be in service to the nation state or something like that, or to the state itself or the nation itself, however you want to cash that out. Uh, But here is Mayor Pete doing exactly that, using these religious arguments to build a different kind of national myth. So it literally is, it seems to me, the, the exact mirror image of the religious right. And sometimes even worse, right? Like, not even Donald Trump has been like, well, everyone needs to serve in the military. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like, um, 
I've been listening to a lot of uh, the Know Your Enemy podcast, um, Sam Adler Bell and Matt Sitman. And it's a great podcast. If you don't listen to it, it's uh, a couple of lefty guys talking to and about um, conservatism, trying to understand it and the different varieties of it and really helpful and informative. Um, but one thing uh, Matt Sitman sometimes talks about is it's a line from, I think, Pat Buchanan about the uh, the conservatism of the heart. Um, that there's this kind of conservatism that isn't necessarily even a, a mental exercise, but it's kind of a, an intuitive thing, um, you know, becomes part of your way of being or something. And it seems to me that actually uh, Buttigieg strikes me as sort of a conservative <laughs> of the heart mm -hmm. in many respects. I, I don't know if that's fair or true, but I guess that's just kind of the vibe that I sometimes get when he starts talking about uh, religion or, or talking about what he wants to do with religion in these kinds of uh, national revivals or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Have to ask the Know Your Enemy guys about that. I guess so. Uh, well, let me throw another one at you and hear what you think about this. Okay. So people to judge goes on to say in conversation with Jim Wallace, he says, uh, there's also a question of power. Who is empowered by our political system? I would like to believe that one of the virtues of the democratic system is that it's more likely to enable those who've been marginalized to acquire power and to be made better off. But needless to say that some of the twisting of our democracy that's happened as a consequence of many things, some of which can be reversed by good policies, what they are we still don't know, like <laughs> the role of money in politics that is made for a government, uh, even in the supposedly democratic nation whose very structure, uh, it tends to comfort the comfortable and afflict the afflicted. All right. So he's kind of losing the plot at the end there. Um, yeah, again, sure. this is this is a transcript, you know, speaking off the cuff. Um, but that idea uh, that he's trying to communicate here of this is a question of power. And, uh, you know, he'd like to believe that uh, a democratic system could allow the marginalized to get power. Uh, what do you think about Mayor Pete saying that? <laughs> it, it's like, do you ever think that <laughs> politics is just people lying in public and like we just just get like we just are OK with it for some reason? <laughs> because like, I do that's how it that. feels. I, do. I don't know. Again, like, what is he talking about? In, in what sense is this true? The marginalized are never able to acquire power. Like that's the whole, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing about <laughs> politics. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just don't know what he's talking about. It's so weird. Like I get it. He wants to believe in democracy, but it's hard because there are all of these, these threats to democracy in the United States. Um, but like, I don't think, I mean, this is assuming that the democratic process in the United States even works the way that's supposed to. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's even true. Uh, well, I just, mean, you can, you can do that other kind of weird reversal where like it does work in the way that it's supposed to insofar as it doesn't allow marginalized people to have power or reverse the kinds of things that American democracy was built to preserve, like white supremacist rule or capitalist uh, accumulation of wealth and those sorts of things. Yeah, I and I buy that. I think that makes sense. But I, I guess in this in just going off the rhetoric of this thing right here that that, that yeah, yeah. just said, it's like he's assuming that the system works in the first place and that but you know even though there might be questions but i, I just don't think that's true i think that's I, I don't know i mean like the 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 donald trump election you know donald trump won over a person who had the popular vote which you know hillary clinton would have sucked too but like in a whole different way that at least kids might not be in cages maybe i don't know i mean it's just you know it's just this weird naive assumption that democracy is even what we're doing here and i think that's wrong headed yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting, too, because, you know, we've talked to Jim Hodgson about Bolivia recently and then Venezuela uh, earlier this year. And in both cases, what really struck me coming away from those conversations was Jim's insistence that 
you have to look at these projects as flawed as they might be or contradictory as they might be or whatever as ultimately projects of the poor trying to get power and then what Mm -hmm. happens when they do and people don't just kind of let it occur and they do that through democratic means right through these really intriguing political processes uh, that are invented like the commune structure in Venezuela that give the poor a, a say and allow them to come together and have their own say um, in, a, in a community. Uh, these kinds of democratic systems ultimately don't get respected by a place like the United States, um, which is, you know, <laughs> it's like if Mayor Pete wanted to know how democratic systems embolden uh, marginalized people to to acquire power and then defend it, uh, certainly he, you know, <laughs> there are other places he could look. Uh, yeah. But as far as I know, uh, Mayor Pete doesn't have any investment in, you know, denouncing the coup in Bolivia or something. Right. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, Jacques Ranciere, uh, uh, sort of like left wing, kind of postmodern philosopher sort of guy, has this book that I kind of like. It's been a bit since I've read it, so maybe I shouldn't say anything too um, <laughs> too explicit, but uh, it's called Hatred of Democracy. But basically in the book, he says something really similar to what you just said, um, that democracy is not like a, a stable state, like you don't have it or not. It's sort of like, um, do you have a lot of it or do you have a little of it? And what does that look like? Um, so for Rencier, you know, it's always like, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that like, um, even though the United States political system is... Um, democratic in some ways it's not in others i just don't want to sound like a complete defeatist about it and say there's no sort of way forward because there probably is but it's just like a very difficult one where um you know you'd have to use the democratic system at hand to probably expand those claims in um more robust ways but that's a hard thing to do and very complicated and and mayor pete doesn't even know what that means (laughs) yeah well we'll get to that in just a minute exactly that problem um, before we do, though, uh, let's leave Mayor Pete behind, but at least give a little bit of uh, time, airtime, to Julian Castro. Um, so, okay, everybody thinks Mayor Pete is the big religious left guy, like we said earlier, um, but it's kind of a questionable thing for reasons that we've said here, but also because every time Mayor Pete sort of vaguely alludes to the fact that he's been to church or talked about church, journalists seize on that. It's a moment that they take advantage of. Uh, you know, it's it's a careerist thing, like, to, to point this out and make that your your niche and it's fine like everybody does it journalists do it all the time (laughs) but uh like other candidates who actually do seem to meet the kind of religious left um in an interesting way often don't get covered or don't even make uh a a blip um not to mention all the people who are part of the the so-called religious left who are either not christian or who are uh working in in political fields outside of electoral politics. In any case, I think that the best example of this is something that just happened a couple weeks ago when Julian Castro uh, met with some Catholic workers in Iowa. Uh, You'd think this would be front page news for like religious left journalists. And yet it only, I mean, it made the news all over local news. Like there was, we could find lots of things um, from local news and someone from the uh, Iowa Catholic worker Um, Thankfully, uh, a guy named David Goodner sent us a bunch of uh, these kinds of like local articles, which is very kind of you, David. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, But none of these articles about this story uh, trickled up to like any kind of mainstream reporting. As far as I know, no religious left folks even got that invested in it as a story at all. Um, And yeah, I I think it's worth kind of pointing out um, not to endorse Julian Castro or anything like that, but just to sort of express 
you know, where the, the balance of, of coverage is, uh, is weighted in terms of electoral reporting on the religious left. Um, so Matt, uh, could you maybe like walk us through a little bit, the events here, um, that happened a couple weeks ago? Yeah, it's really straightforward. I mean, it's not like a huge showy event or anything, but it's like, I don't know, notable for sure. So, okay. Julian Castro, he is in Iowa. There's the Iowa city Catholic worker house just doing their thing. Um, Catholic workers, we've talked about them on this podcast a lot. They're good. Um, I'm not going to endorse Julian Castro, but I'm going to endorse the Catholic worker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, they're good. Um, they, they show up for people. I mean, if nothing else, right. Um, I, I think they have, they have interesting politics. They have a really interesting sort of spiritual practice and religious heritage. That's all really cool. Um, but they do definitely show up for people. Um, they've been showing up for people who've been detained or deported, um, you know, in the United States. So in light of all that, Julian Castro shows up to um, like the court case of this one particular um, like immigrant who's there in the United States. He's been here for three months, kind of fleeing Honduras and the violence there. But um, in light of that, ICE picked him up and put like an ankle an ankle bracelet on his body to track him, which is um, yucky in a lot of ways to say the least. Anyways, the, the Catholic worker house is kind of like rally around this person and he's going to um, get the ankle bracelet taken off. So Julian Castro is like at the court date with the Catholic workers and they're like there after this guy is like, you know, um, kind of freed from this um, ankle bracelet and they kind of are there to receive him as he comes out. And that's all really kind of interesting and touching and actually pretty sweet. Yeah. So after the fact, they like prayed outside the ice facility, which is great. And then they went, uh, they all went back Julian Castro included to the Iowa city Catholic worker house. And they had sort of like a forum on immigration and like what they're doing. And to me, this speaks, um, way louder <laughs> than Pete Buttigieg talking to Jim Wallace about like whatever, Abraham Lincoln said about being on God's side or whatever, you know, like it's one thing to say you're a Christian and like, you know, allude to the fact that you go to church and isn't that cool. But like, I don't know, Julian Castro showed up with a bunch of Catholic workers to like an ice facility. That's something Um, (laughs) way more interesting than everything that Pete Buttigieg has ever said. So again, I'm not, uh, not here endorsing Julian Castro, but um, it's good. It's good to say the least. It's something like that is noteworthy that is more religious left than other things, qualitatively so. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, <laughs> again, not endorsing J- Julian Castro, whatever, but uh, it is a big deal that he, first of all, would connect with the Catholic worker in this way. And secondly, would even spend time, you know, thinking in their space, like with people who are uh, telling him stories. Like there were a lot of. Um, in the uh, the coverage of it, there's a lot of uh, comments from immigrants who met him and said that they felt listened to and and all that kind of thing. And like that is important. Um, and I think it's interesting too because like Julian Castro is not going to win the nomination. Like he knows that the, this event will not have skyrocketed him to the top of the polls. Uh, it will not have changed anything. He didn't even make the debate stage last time around, and he's not going to make the next one either. Uh, but I think it's actually pretty laudable that he's making use of this kind of weird social capital that he has for just a minute. (laughs) Like he's a presidential candidate and he has been on the debate stage. And so he can draw at least some attention to these kinds of things. Um, you know, that's not nothing. And, uh, yeah, it's like making use of, of something kind of interesting to, uh, build at least, uh, not just even an awareness, but like, uh, uh, a sort of affirmation of accompanying people, 
um, you know, against uh, their ice check-in or something. Uh, I think that that's meaningful. Yeah, so Julian Castro sure did something. That's interesting. I am interested. Yeah, too bad that he won't make the next debate because it'd be cool to hear him talk about that. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean it would just... be better to hear him than uh, that billionaire guy whose name I can't remember right now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I can't I can't remember his name either. I'd rather hear Julian Castro than most of those folks, but whatever. <laughs> Cool. Well, you might be thinking, listen, I thought this was a Marxist podcast. I thought I was going to hear about communism and socialism and revolution. And you're not wrong. You're going to hear about that. But (laughs) electoralism is a question that communists and socialists and, well, definitely anarchists, they're mad about it, though, um, have been talking about just forever. Um, Can communists and socialists and left, left types participate in bourgeois parliaments, in bourgeois elections? It's a good question. So um, we thought we could answer that question now since we've spent so much time talking about them. Like, you know, you might be thinking why, but here's why. So (laughs) (laughs) we're just going to get to right to the bottom of this one really quick. (laughs) This question that people have been talking about for 200 years or whatever. (laughs) Um, Okay. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of tackle this question, but it's pretty clear, like, what's at stake, right? Like, um, if you think that you should overturn the system altogether, you think that capitalism is bad and the state that wields it is also bad, then like, why would you even want to participate in elect like electoral politics? You know, why even give it sort of like the time of day or why would you even, you know, dignify it with your own participation or whatever? Does that seem like a, like a good characterization of the argument, Dean? Yeah, I think so. Or the sentiment maybe. Okay. Um, cool. Well, uh, guess what? Lenin, he talks a lot about this. Vladimir Lenin, our, our main dude next to Marx. <laughs> yeah. He has a lot to say about, uh, electoralism and parliaments. And, um, the thing I always like about Lenin, uh, I, I'm not, not a long time Lenin fan over here, but the thing I do appreciate him, the thing I do appreciate about Lenin, the more I read about him is that he's like extremely practical and, um, he's never like going to take like a hard ideological line for no reason. So that's cool. Um, so this is, uh, we have a few, a few different quotes here from Lenin that we can kind of use to think about electoralism and why these questions are even important about why we should care about these weird Democrats. Um, so anyways, from a bigger essay that maybe we should talk about someday called left-wing communism and infantile disorder. Um, (laughs) great title. (laughs) It's a crazy title. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, yeah, well, Lenin, um, he talks about this. He sort of has like a chapter set aside for this. The title of the section is called Should We Participate in Bourgeois Parliaments? And in it, Lenin says this. Parliamentarianism has become historically obsolete. That's true in the propaganda sense. I like that. I like that qualification. There's a propaganda <laughs> sense, and then there's like a real sense. <laughs> However, everybody knows that this is still a far cry from overcoming it in practice. Capitalism could have been declared and with full justice to be historically obsolete many decades ago, but that does not at all remove the need for a very long and very persistent struggle on the basis of capitalism. Okay, so what he's saying here is that uh, parliamentarianism, bourgeois parliamentarianism, bourgeois elections, like, listen, they're bullshit. They're not good. Um, It's all kind of a farce. But at the same time, um, you can't just say they're over and done with and ignore them because uh, they're still happening whether you like them or not. Um, He goes on further to talk a lot about German leftists in this uh, bit of um, an infantile disorder. Uh, He's he's real critical of those German leftists, probably rightfully so. Um, He goes on and says this um, about those German leftists. An attempt to circumvent this difficulty by skipping the arduous job of utilizing reactionary parliaments for revolutionary purposes is absolutely childish. 
You want to create a new society, yet you fear the difficulties involved in forming a good parliamentary group made up of convinced, devoted, and heroic communists in a reactionary parliament? Is that not childish? It is. It is childish. <laughs> Basically, he's just like, I don't know. You're like, you want to make a whole new society, but you don't want to get involved in electoralism. But like, why? <laughs> um, you're going to have to kind of like use every every tool that is available to you. So might as well jump in and get your hands dirty. It's, it, you know, you don't want to hold you. You don't want to just like um, ignore electoralism as a possible, like, you know, site of struggle, whatever that might look like, uh, just because you don't like it or because it's bourgeois or like, you know, not to your taste or whatever. So Lenin has something going here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, definitely worth noting that the the historical situation of the Bolshevik Party is very different than like the United States in 2019. Yeah, totally. Years later, after the uh, revolution, no doubt about that. But the advice is the same. Like, you know, the idea of uh, <laughs> you think that you're just going to skip over all this stuff, um, then you're sorely mistaken. I think is a good way of putting it. Uh, I, I like too that it's classic Lenin. Like I think there's a line, I want to say it's in State and Revolution, but it's somewhere in Lenin where he says something like, you know, uh, a, a communist should be basically mistaken for being an anarchist. But mm. like, here's why the state's actually very important. <laughs> like, I like that moment in Lenin where he recognizes the principled opinion that you ought to have and the principled political stance and interpretation. But also, like you said, he has this pragmatic and practical side that's like, look, we all want to get there, but we have to recognize the real limitations and the real opportunities that we do have in the material conditions that we've got. Like we don't get to choose them. They come to us and you have to, you know, play with the cards you've been dealt. Okay. That's exactly right. So Dean, if you like that, you're going to love this next quote from Lenin. (laughs) Okay, cool. So this is from uh, Lenin's two tactics of social democracy and democratic revolution. Uh, Lenin says this, Marxism teaches the proletarian not to keep aloof from the bourgeois revolution, not to be indifferent to it, not to allow the leadership of the revolution to be assumed by the bourgeoisie, but on the contrary, to take a most energetic part in it, to fight most resolutely for consistent proletarian democracy, for carrying the revolution to its conclusion. We cannot jump out of the bourgeois democratic boundaries of the, well, in this case, the 1905 Russian Revolution, not the other one, the first one. But we can vastly extend these boundaries, and within these boundaries, we can and must fight for the interests of the proletariat, for its immediate needs, and for the conditions that will make it possible to prepare its forces for the future complete victory. So there you go. Um, don't, I mean, like, there, there is a way in which um, Marxism can just be like, well, none of this matters, we just wait for the revolution, who cares about all this election, election stuff, it's like not important, it's a distraction. And like, yeah, I mean, it is definitely a distraction, but also... Um, it could be super important who's in charge. <laughs> you never know, right? Um, case in point, Donald Trump is very bad. It's very bad that he's in charge, and it could be better if somebody else was. I mean, you know, not perfect at all, but it could be better for sure. Um, and it makes sense, right? If you're a communist and you care about the workers, and like that's like the kind of thing you're about, you want there to be a different society, Like you should try to figure out any way you can to make things better for them. Um, you know, it's just the case that like if you can get... <laughs> You know, you get you get more social democrats in office, right? That's a strategy. You get Medicare for all. You get all kinds of other things like more paid parental leave and like uh, universal childcare and these kinds of things, right? People will just start to figure out what they really like is socialism and not not capitalism. And uh, I think it makes some sense here. You, you need uh, you need to expand the uh, the proletarian democracy where you can. 
Yeah, I mean, that's always the thing that sticks out to me from, I think I may, might maybe even mention this last week, I can't remember now, but the uh, bit in Rosa Luxemburg um, about, uh, hey, if there are workers' reforms that really make the life of working people better, then we should support them without any kind of hesitation. Um, just recognizing that we're trying to put those in a revolutionary horizon and not sort of stopping at the reform as though that's a, a victory. Um and not, you know, one small step along a very long way. Uh, I think that is a good way. It at least helps me kind of frame these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, historically, communists have uh, participated in elections uh, around the world, um, but also in the U.S. and Canada. And they've even won some seats, real life seats, uh, especially here in Canada. There's a really interesting electoral history, but also in, in the U.S. Uh, but obviously, it's a long way since that has happened. Um I don't even know when the last time there was a communist in a significant office seat uh, would have been in either of those countries, but not in my living memory. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so the question becomes, I guess, you know, what are you supposed to do with all that uh, faced with these electoral politics? Um, you know, Canada just had a big election. The U.S. is about to have one. And I think it helps to actually look at the Communist Party platforms in both of these countries just to see what they actually think about it. Um, so I'll read the, the Canadian bit, or at least a bit from the platform. Um, we could talk a bit about that and then maybe I could say something about the, uh, their participation in this previous election. So the Canadian platform says this, uh, which I think is really great. A democratic anti-monopoly, anti-imperialist alliance will have as its objective, the democratic restructuring of Canadian society so that the interests of the majority of Canadians come first and the stranglehold of finance capital on every aspect of life is broken. It will seek to advance the working people's interests through all available avenues of struggle based on massive and united extra-parliamentary action. The alliance will strive to score electoral advances and the winning of power by a people's government dedicated to carrying out sweeping measures to democratize society and transform economic relations in the interest of the working people and the Canadian people as a whole, the working class and Canadian people as a whole. Such a breakthrough will be difficult to accomplish given the sophisticated means at the disposal of the ruling class to manipulate public opinion, discourage political activism, and otherwise influence the outcome of bourgeois elections. The crucial task for the alliance will be to defend and expand democracy and to fight against corporate and governmental attacks on the electoral process. Uh, what I love about this paragraph is it's like all these things at once. <laughs> it's like, on the one hand, you've got to get into the electoral stuff. Uh, it's a, a piece of the struggle. It's one available avenue of the struggle, and you should seek to you know, advance working people's interests through it. Uh, on the other hand, though, you've got to have some extra parliamentary action, and you also have to not be naive about the fact that at the end of the day, um, you're fighting an uphill and probably losing battle ultimately uh, against the ruling class in that struggle. Um, and I mean, th these kinds of principles were played out in the last Canadian election where the party did run lots of candidates across the country in different um, strategic uh, places. And it was really important because although, you know, none of their party members got elected, uh, elections are a time when people are out there talking about politics and they're ready to talk about it and they have opinions about it and the news is talking about it and communists want to be part of that conversation. And this is something that allows you to get inside people's apartment buildings and ask them to, you know, put their signature on a piece of paper that says this person can run in the election and you can hand them pamphlets that explain the, the program of the party um, you can get candidates on a debate stage. Uh, for instance, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Christy Freeland in Canada, 
who has uh, helped to organize the coup in Venezuela, for instance. Um, the party ran a candidate against her named Drew Garvey, and uh, it's great to like see her have to deal with his criticisms in a public venue. You know, did it like unseat her? No, obviously. Um, unfortunately, Drew Garvey is not in Parliament today, <laughs> but uh, it does actually raise questions for people that probably they wouldn't otherwise ever have thought about. And uh, it's again just the nature of uh, the cards we've been dealt that you have to intervene in these kinds of situations, as as flawed and frustrating as they could be. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, the uh, communist parties in the United States are not all that far off, so. Um, I mean, there's a lot of left groups in the United States, and we could probably go through a lot of them. Um, you know, they all work in electoral politics to different degrees, but we thought we'd just kind of stick with the uh, the classics, I suppose, for this one. <laughs> um, so the CPUSA, the Communist Party of the United States of America, they have a kind of interesting approach to electoral politics. Um, there's probably two things we could say about that. But uh, I do want to quickly mention something about the Party for Socialism and Liberation, another Marxist-Leninist group that uh, deals with electoralism a lot. Um, in the previous years, I don't know if it's happening this year, but... Um, they've run an actual candidate. Um, her name is Gloria Lariva, and she's been like an interesting person. She like, I mean, runs kind of like as an independent from the party, and obviously she doesn't win. But just the same, it's kind of like an interesting thing that they do. Um, it kind of brings attention to who they are and to um, you know socialism and like what's about. So you know, it's I think it's sort of even just like a matter of like spectacle and outreach. It's definitely worth it, probably. Um, so that's one thing, but the communist party yeah. has a little bit of a different approach. Um, and it's more, um, about coalition building and, um, other things too, but I'll read you the bit, um, from the communist party platform, uh, about electoral politics. The communist party as part of the developing all people's front to defeat the ultra right participates fully with the labor movement and its allies in building a strong people's electoral force. The Communist Party's approach to people's electoral politics is a basic aspect of our view that the current stage of struggle requires an all-people's front to defeat the ultra-right. This is an essential strategy to the historical period, not just a temporary shift in tactics. Ultra-right political dominance challenges the vast majority of people in this country, even including some sectors of monopoly capital, and, very broadly, unity is both possible and necessary to bring about major political shift. Without the shift, the people's movements will be continually on the defensive. Without building this broad unity, the ultra-right will succeed in splitting their opposition, will continue to succeed in settling the priorities and agendas for the nation, and will risk ever greater military adventurism in pursuit of an illusory global dominance. Without first defeating the ultra-right section of Monopoly, the working class and its allies cannot proceed to radically curb the power of monopolies as a whole. So there's two things we can say about the CPUSA and their approach to electoralism here. First, um, it's all about coalitions. That's their big thing. Um, if there's like a labor candidate, if there's a, a union person running in a local election, CPUSA will show up for them and kind of like promote them on, you know, the Internet and elsewhere. Um, a lot of people who are in CPUSA are like really kind of plugged into the labor movement. So uh, a lot of like old school union people are a part of CPUSA. Um the other thing here that's really interesting to me is that, like, the the whole point is that, like, the right is such a huge force in the United States that, like, if you ignored electoral politics, you would create such a worse situation for yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not entirely different than the CPC uh, and their approach, but it's just, like, um, if you don't like electoralism, well, then, like, <laughs> fine, somebody else does, and it is the right. So, you know, 
get involved in some way in coalition building and showing up for like unions and like union leaders or, you know, you're going to suffer the consequences, which is just another right wing government. And I think that's a pretty fair approach. Honestly, I don't know. I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that. I, I agree. Yeah. And I, I mean, you get certain criticisms of this from the further left uh, folks where it's like, uh, you know, the like if people just elect Democrats or whatever, things aren't going to fundamentally change, which is true, obviously. I mean, that's accurate. It's if if we had Hillary Clinton as the president or I mean, heck, even Elizabeth Warren or or others or even Bernie Sanders, like we're not going to get a different response in terms of uh, opinion about like the Maduro government in Venezuela, for instance. Um, and that's a, a tragic and an unfortunate reality. But at the same time, like it would be frankly like stupid and willfully naive to suggest that like things wouldn't be different both at home and abroad in, in some pretty material and tangible ways. Uh, if Donald Trump wasn't the president, for example, uh, regardless of, of who else might have been in, in office. Uh, and it's like, yeah, it sucks. It's a huge bummer, but it is what it is. And uh, I think there's something about yeah, like not getting lost in the electoral sort of scene and not thinking that that is actually what politics is like for sure. All those things are true. And even, you know, communists and Leninists, that's kind of what people are always saying is like, don't get hung up on the spectacle of uh, bourgeois elections. But nevertheless, like you should see them as a vehicle, um, as a, a an avenue of struggle that you, you are compelled to. Uh, participate in um, in in a specific kind of way, not just as an observer or a pundit or whatever, but as somebody trying to really think about how to activate the contradictions that are present in those kinds of moments and uh, hopefully drive people toward a, a more, um, you know, drive people to be to feel more welcome in a, a radical coalition that says no to all those things uh, down the road. Yeah, I think that's really important to say. I mean, if you don't like Hillary Clinton, then you're going to hate Donald Trump, right? Like, um, <laughs> it is it is definitely a bummer, but you're right. It's an important thing. Um, okay, well, um, here's a dissenting opinion from someone who I respect. So how about this? Um, right. This is uh, from an essay that was written in The Forge, which is like an online sort of like radical newspaper or whatever. It's called Against Electoralism. And it's by Alison Escalante who you might recognize from the Red Menace podcast. Um, she's very smart and knows a lot about Leninism and sort of Marxist philosophy. So that's why I'm listening to her in this case. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is what, she's, she's, this is what she says. Um, okay, getting a candidate elected takes resources. The New York chapter of the DSA mobilized members to register 20,000 new voters, rallied around traditional campaign promotion, and in the end successfully propelled Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to a successful election win. That happened. That's how that's how this whole thing is prefaced. Um, and then in the uh, sort of later in this essay, uh, it turns and says this. Imagine if all those hours the DSA poured into electing Ocasio-Cortez were instead used to feed the people of New York, to provide them with medical care, to ensure their needs were met. Imagine the masses seeing socialism not as a pipe dream we might achieve through electing more imperialists, but as a concrete movement which is currently meeting their needs. The fact is, we are not nearly ready for revolution. Socialists in the United States have failed to meet the needs of the people, and as long as their only concrete interaction with the masses is handing them a voter registration form, they will continue to fail the people. Our task now is not to elect representatives to uh, advocate for the people. It is much more gruelingly laborious than that. 
our task is to serve the people. Our task is to build dual power. So that's like the Lenness thing at the end about dual power, which is mm-hmm. another thing. Uh, we talked about that a lot with Drevant Land a um, hundred years ago. So go back and look for that one, I guess. But uh, I appreciate this intervention because it does give a little bit, I don't know, of good criticism of that electoralism that like, um, just kind of like you said, Dean, like if you get too weighed down in it and think like that's what politics actually is, it could be very bad. On the other hand, I don't know. I don't think it's altogether bad that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was elected. I think that's probably, I mean, uh, again, you know, she's not perfect, but a net win for the left, I would say. Um, better than a lot of other things that could have happened in that case. But I, I do get the sentiment, though, right? So, like, what if instead of wor- worrying about electoralism, you poured all of your time and energy into actually, like, doing sort of, like, organizing work and meeting with people and feeding them? And I think that sounds pretty good, too. It's a, it's like a helpful intervention, but one that doesn't, I think, kind of take care of the, um, the base sort of need. Uh, but it's a good one to keep in mind just the same. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that, like, um, I get the point that's being made here, right? And I sometimes have my own frustrations with certain people I know in the DSA. Not all. This is not a stand-in for the DSA as a whole. But certain people that I know who, you know, do think that basically politics is about spending all your time canvassing for somebody and making phone calls and stuff on behalf of a candidate. Uh, And that's true. Like, that is bad. You shouldn't think that. Uh, But at the same time, like, the DSA does do a lot of other stuff, like, you know, holding brake light clinics and um, organizing Mm -hmm. against ICE and and really, like, putting their nose to the grindstone and serving the people. Like, DSA does uh, try um, to do these two things, uh, sometimes in ways that are really good, sometimes in ways that you wish that uh, they would just stop talking about, like, (laughs) some weird local Democrat. (laughs) But, yeah, you know, it's a a huge movement full of, like, lots of uh, identity confusion. And I think it's important to sort of affirm, like, not only that, uh, like, okay, it's true, the DSA probably spends a little too much time, I think, sometimes on electoral stuff when they could be doing some other things, but it's not like they're not doing those things either. Um, and in that sense, it's like, you know, the, the left has to find a way of like, uh, I don't know, building these broad coalitions. Like, I think the Communist Party platforms are right. Like, you, you have to uh, uh, find a way to not reduce your politics to elections, but also not write them off. And so, yeah, I agree with you. This is a really helpful intervention. I guess I, I don't know why I feel the need to like stand up for the DSA, which I'm not even a member. <laughs> I don't even live in that country, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I guess I, I've just seen so many people like really put their heart and time into serving the people in, in material ways um, through that organization. And I think that is actually something to kind of like keep building up and affirming. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I think that something that's kind of interesting in both of these takes, though, is that, like, the whole point of having a party is that you can create a culture and sort of, like, a structure where people who would be good politicians could come from. Right. Like, and I guess it's the bummer about not having a very strong left party in the United States or in North America. I mean, I'm not going to speak for the CPC because they're good, but... um, but I mean, like in the United States, at least, right? There's like not one left party that could actually articulate sort of like something that could that could actually form form people into, I don't know, the communist and socialist that the world needs at any given moment. And I guess that's kind of too bad, um, be, because I mean, if you want to do electoralism, I, I mean, I don't know. The DSA is a good example, though, right? Like, if you wanna if you wanna run for a local office or a national office or whatever, right? And you're in the DSA, you have to run as a Democrat, like. 
even right. in the United States, um, a dude uh, from St. Louis ran um, for a local office, and he's a CPUSA member, like a pretty high up, high up guy. And he still runs a Democrat, and like that's I guess fine, but it's just like without without a strong sort of party infrastructure and a strong like culture of being a party, you can't really get beyond I don't know that, and that's yeah. just a bummer. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's the other piece of it too is like just having a sobering look at what's really going on. And in that sense, I really sympathize too with what Allison says here about, you know, we're not ready for revolution. It's not around the corner and uh, building that culture, as you put it, even in the party, but beyond it too, is probably one of the best things that you can do. Um, You know, that's what made like the Black Panther Party attractive to its own constituency. It's what made the Young Lords attractive to its constituency. Um, it's what makes churches, it's what makes churches attractive, um, to people. And it's also what makes churches sites of like revolutionary, uh, energy in places like Latin America is exactly that, you know, these are the people you can count on to like help you get fed and give you medical care. Uh, and so those are the kinds of people too, that you're going to, um, be willing to have like a conversation about politics with. Um, and that's true, uh, in a way that like giving someone uh, a voter registration card or like asking them to sign a piece of paper is not true. <laughs> right. And if you're, and if you're mad about the types of like left candidates you get, like most leftists in the United States are mad about, then like, I don't know, the only solution is to make, I don't know, to create a sort of party culture where you could create better ones, right? Like if you're mad about the options you have, it's because there's no space to sort of form these people and give them political education and whatever. Like, I don't know. You can be mad about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez all you want, but like she, we'd have better candidates if we had a party, if we, if there was like a, a solid sort of infrastructure that can create these people and train them and like make them the people we need. Yeah. And like parties are thankfully trying to do that kind of work. Um, but there's a lot of challenges, <laughs> a lot of problems right. to doing it. It lacks a really unified sort of force, right? Like there's not, there's no the party. There's just a bunch of like right. very fragmented <laughs> folks <laughs> trying, just right. doing their best, but not together, which is a bummer. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. So I guess in the end, if you want people who are better than people to judge, uh, you got to have a, a vibrant communist and socialist party that is like strong enough to do it there. That's I'm I'm putting the big the big Christmas bow on it. Put it under the tree. Unwrap it next month. That's good. Do not open till Christmas unless you wanna. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, we recently posted a, a, a boring, <laughs> boring debate coverage episode there. Uh, bonus coverage from when I was visiting Matt recently in Greenville. Uh, so you can listen to that. You can listen to all our hot electoral takes. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff there, too. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at the Magnificast. You can send us an email at the Magnificast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week. Oh, wait, I forgot to say. Our music, as always, is by Amoria Armstrong and the Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, and keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, keep your hoods up.
keep your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still.